Hello friends, welcome to episode 20 of True Crime Time. I'm your host Megan, still here in quarantine. Um, I have a special guest today who's laughing really hard for reasons that I don't understand. Um, we're not breaking any social distancing rules because we have seen each other several times. My sister, Bonnie, hello, say hello to the people. Hello. Oh, you sound just like me when hello. you said that. That was terrifying. <laughs> hello, okay. everyone. Um, how are you doing with quarantine? How's that going? It's going okay. I put on lipstick today to to do this podcast with you, and it's been about a month and a half since I did that. Thank so you for doing that for me. I think I'm doing pretty well. I mean, I feel like you're lying because you tell me very different things, but that's okay. You, this is your first time here. You can lie to the people this time. Um, also, I just want to note, and this is something that we just kind of really thought about, we sound very similar. People have told us that we sound similar, yeah. so it might sound like I'm talking to myself or worse. <laughs> I'm hallucinating. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm really here. Bonnie is here. That's Bonnie. But we sound the same. This might get really irritating for you, and I'm sure you'll let me know all about it in the reviews, <laughs> which I no longer read because some of you are terrible. So... I have a crazy case today. We have a lot to talk about. We're going to take a quick break, unless you have anything exciting you want to say at the beginning. I'm excited. I'm excited to get going. Stop lying. She said like grandpa. All right, so we're going to take a break. I see your nostrils flaring. And we'll be right back. Hello, welcome back. So much has happened in that in that break that we just had. Um, we're so having much. a great time. We have our drinks. We're ready to rock and roll. What are we going to talk about today? And I actually think I noted this here. I think you're the one who told me about this case initially. I believe that back in the day. Very interesting. There's a lot. There's a lot to cover. A lot to discuss. There's a lot. Um, so I'm sure many of you have seen the HBO documentary, The Jinx, but if you haven't and you don't know about the story, I'm going to tell it to you. So just to say some sources, I've gotten info from the documentary I just mentioned, um, Wikipedia, and also everywhere in between because I've been reading about this for years. So the New York Times, LA Times, um, Newsday, I don't know, like any paper, if you've ever written about this, I probably read it. Um... So we're going to get into the story. I'm basically following the layout of the documentary for those of you who have watched it or if you're interested or whatever. So in September 2001, several black garbage bags were found floating in Galveston Bay in Galveston, Texas. That's right. You're right to shake your head. Mm -hmm. Recovered from the bay were a torso, arms and legs, but no head. Ugh. Yes. Apparently, one of the bags also contained a newspaper which thankfully showed an address. This first major, first major mistake. Amateur mistake. Right. So, uh, 2213 Avenue K, Galveston, was the address on the newspaper. Authorities spoke with the landlord who was able to tell them that his two tenants were Morris Black in apartment one and a mute old lady named Dorothy Siner in apartment two. Through fingerprint identification, the body from the bay was confirmed to be Morris Black. Upon searching the house, 
Investigators noticed blood in the hallway between the two apartments leading into apartment two. So remember, Morris lived in one. Um, and because of this, a warrant was obtained and apartment two was searched. So in apartment two, first impressions were that it was pretty neat and not a lot of personal items, but there were drop cloths on the floor. Looking closer at the floor underneath the drop cloths, there were cuts in the floor, small, but noticeable. Very suspicious. That's very suspicious. So in the documentary, they actually showed this to be like a tile or some kind of a laminate that the investigators peeled up. Do you want to know what they found underneath? What did they find? You know what they found. They found blood. <laughs> of course There's, they did. They were able to confirm the blood belonged to Morris Black. So between that and the small cuts in the floor, investigators believed that's where he was dismembered. That's logical. That makes sense. So they're poking around, trying to learn whatever they can. They continue to talk to the landlord. According to him, the mute woman in apartment two was hardly ever there. But he did see someone he thought to be her brother-in-law from time to time. It was also observed in the apartment that there was nothing to indicate that a woman lived there. Hmm. Interesting. What do they do next? They go through the trash. Which I can imagine. Could you imagine, like, a, like a, you think a crime happened, you get to go through the trash? No. I no. wouldn't want that job. I think it sounds, like, fun. Interesting. That probably makes me an asshole, right? <laughs> I'm like, something terrible happened here? Let me go through your trash. <laughs> so, in the trash, which I've said so many times now, trash, trash, trash. For 2213 Avenue K was a receipt to pick up eyeglasses, which is pretty normal. Only the name on the receipt was not Morris Black or Dorothy Siner. The name on the receipt was Robert Durst. Wow. So what's going on here? What's happening? Pretty quickly, they begin to suspect that Dorothy Siner was a cover. Which, I don't know if that, was, if that would be a conclusion I would draw at first. I would think maybe there was like a visitor. Right. Absolutely. Maybe you have it a visitor. It a lot to get to the point of... It seemed like they kind of figured that out right away. Right. So maybe there's more to the story. Like, I don't, I don't really know. Um, so Sergeant Cody Cazales, I'm going to say. Okay, that's good enough. Close I'm enough. going to try that. But now we're just going to call him Sergeant Cody because I don't want to disrespect him by saying his name wrong every single time. Once was enough. <laughs> Once is enough. Um, so he's on the case. He goes to the eye clinic named on the receipt and asked if they knew Robert Durst. Someone working there informed him that they did. And he was supposed to pick up his glasses a few days prior. Sergeant Cody, last name already discussed, <laughs> left his card and asked that they let him know if he comes in. So, meanwhile, while all this is going on, a receipt for a local hardware store was also found in the trash. My favorite word today. Jackpot. Listed on the receipt were a paring knife, drop cloth, and a bow saw. Which is, just in case you don't know, one of those manual, yep, one of those manual hand saws, which I actually noted here as well to bring up to you. Mom let me use <laughs> when I was like 10. Why? For what? <laughs> I wanted to build a treehouse in the backyard. <laughs> and they knew that I wasn't going to be able to, but they were like, sure, take this saw. <laughs> well. <At> t like... <laughs> That's fine. She really rolled the dice on that one. But yeah. I, it worked out okay. You're I have all my so. digits. <laughs> Everything's fine. Also, I nailed one board to a tree. 
That's it. That's impressive. It might still be there. I don't know. So anyway, Sergeant Cody received a page um, on his beeper phone. Yeah. You get pages to your beeper. phone. All right. Whatever. Yeah. Be- beepers are still around in the 2000s. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Like dad's purple Probably beeper. From police, you know, officers and doctors, things like that. Very high tech. Very. Yeah. <laughs> So he receives a page from the eye clinic and he made his way over there. On his way, Robert Durst pulls out in front of him and stops at a red light. Um, He is pulled over and detained immediately. So another investigator arrives on the scene. This must have been so creepy because he kind of knew what else was going on. He recalled in the documentary glancing through the window into the trunk because it was like a small SUV kind of, you know. And he saw a bow saw just laying there. Ugh. Right? Okay. So they took him in and they charged him with murder. They set his bond at 250K. Apparently, Robert then called his wife, Deborah, in New York, who had the money sent over the next morning. 250K? Oh, yeah. That money is nothing to him. No big deal. Some change. Why? Why would it be nothing to him? We don't know about that yet. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> Get- don't get ahead of the the train. What? Oh, that's yeah. never that's good advice for life though. <laughs> don't <laughs> don't just don't do, don't it. do it. So um according to Deborah or Debbie's interview with police, she had not been aware he was renting an apartment in Texas, which how good is your marriage if you don't know your husband has an apartment across the country? Hmm. I feel like I'd probably know if my husband had an apartment across the country. Yeah, like you, you just don't you never at like no, he wasn't home. <laughs> Something I, was. I mean, home. yeah. So, the day he walked out of jail, the information started getting back to New York, where it turns out that Robert Durst is from, and he is a member of one of the richest families in the city, if not the state. Maybe just the city. Maybe the state. I think I might stick with the city. In the city, okay. I'm not sure. uh, they own a lot of real estate in Manhattan under what is called the Durst Organization. A lot of big buildings. Big time. Um, But also, his first wife had gone missing in 1982 and has never been found. People suspected that he was uh, responsible, but more on that later. So, Robert gets out of jail. He skipped bail. He fled. He vanished. Nobody knew where he went. So, at this point in the documentary, there's footage of Robert's brother, Douglas, being interviewed in court or by police. Not really sure. It's kind of like a tight frame. Um, they ask him and he confirms that he hired a bodyguard because he believed at the time that Robert was acting bizarrely and he believed that he could be in danger, which is interesting. If he believed his brother was innocent, why would he do that? Right. Like if I did that, wouldn't you be like, I'm going to go pick her up from jail because this doesn't sound like something she would do. Right. I would say here is the money to bail you out and I would probably pick you up. I wouldn't, you know, Oh no. And hire a bodyguard. She's free. (laughs) Better hire a bodyguard. Yeah. So So there's more to that. There's definitely story. I'm sure there. Yeah. That's definitely interesting. So a private investigator in Galveston reveals that Robert had used many false names in the past. So Dorothy Siner, just being one of many, interestingly, also the name of someone he went to high school with. Hmm. Like, how do you think? It's not very creative. It's not, but why, why her? Anyway, um, 
He also, here's some other names he used, ready? Emilio Vigoni, Diane Wynn, another lady. Another lady. Yeah. Mm. Jim Terse, um, Maury Block, and lastly, he rented a car under the name Morris Black. Mm. What right. was the one before that? Maury Block? Very, very like, close to Morris Black. It seems. Oh. I wonder if he stole that from someone else or he made it up. Mm. It's blocked to like B L O C H. Do you think he's smart enough to make that up? Mm. I don't know. I don't know. More to his mental state later. So, what's Bob's next move from from fleeing bail? Right, he shows up in South Salem, New York, which is kind of it's kind of like upstate from here. It's like Westchestery, maybe a little more so. It's not super upstate, and it's not downstate. Everything's pretty much upstate from us. We're on Long <laughs> from, Island, from here. They know I tell them every time. I'm very, very proud. Yeah. <laughs> Do you guys know I'm from Long Island? You know. Anyway. So he shows up in South Salem on a quiet dock. Pitch, picturesque. There's like a lake um, behind a stone cottage. He decided for some reason to return to the house he shared with his first wife, Kathleen, who had for all intents and purposes disappeared off the planet without a trace. 19 years before. Wow. What's super awkward about this is that he was noticed by the person who lived in the house because he no longer lived there, right? Mm-hmm. So he hadn't lived there for years. That is awkward. Right? So imagine you're looking out your like kit, you're doing dishes, whatever, you look in your backyard and you see some weird old dude back there um, and then you realize it's the guy who also may have killed his wife but also maybe in the house it's probably a, that you live in. Probably a scary moment. He's <laughs> on your property. I would say. Didn't they come out? Do you remember? Because you saw the documentary as well. Didn't yeah. they say that they like came out of the house? I don't recall. Could you? I don't think I could do that. No way. Maybe I would I, lock all the doors. I might have made that up. <laughs> but but I feel like I feel like I remember that they were like hey or something. Mm. Maybe. No, I, I wouldn't do that. one of those scenes from a scary movie when you're yelling, go back in the house. Well, also, if this guy's just, if when you look at his face, it just looks like there's something. Well, you know, you never know. Just if you see a stranger on your property, just stay in your house. Just stay inside. Just get out your gun. Just stay inside. Just kidding. Call me in <laughs> Yeah, no, that's, that's crazy. So, uh, after the house, after the cottage that he used to live at, the next sighting of Robert um, at least in the documentary, is that a Wegmans in Pennsylvania, which are delightful. Very delightful. I love Wegmans. Great store. We don't have any here. If anyone from Wegmans is listening, we would like to have you here. Please, um, love Wegmans. please open one up. We have room for you. So anyway, Robert is in Wegmans. He pulls a real bonehead move and shoplifts an egg salad sandwich, which he is caught for. So of all things you're going to shop, anything, you can have anything in the store. That's what you take. Very, very poor choice. Yeah. Very, very poor choice. And that's aside from the fact that he is a multimillionaire. Well, yeah, that's the, um, that's the funny part about this, which also ridiculous. So you're on the run first, you're on the run. So you don't really want to do anything to draw attention to yourself. That's, that's one. So you're already not doing a good job of that. He had hundreds of dollars in his actual pocket, mm. in his pocket. Um, he also had something like $38,000 in his rental car. 
Yeah. So plenty of money for the egg salad sandwich is what you're telling me. Yeah. I've never heard of a $40,000 egg salad sandwich. But um, you probably want to know what else was in the rental car, though. I do. Right? Okay. Two loaded guns. Weed. Morris Black's driver's license. Right? Bonehead. This guy's a bonehead. Mm. So, after all that, after all that, the egg salad sandwich is what comes to bite him in the ass. Did he get to eat it at least? Do I feel like know? no. Because oh. they caught him on the way out. Oh, that makes it even worse. They showed the footage, and it, it was so sketchy. Like, I don't want to tell people how to steal shit, but, like, he was so... It was such, like, big... Like, he was doing a theater production. <laughs> like, the way he, like, looked behind himself... And he was like, very dramatic, like a raccoon in the trash, kind of, <laughs> yeah. like just. That's not gonna get the job done if you want to steal anything. Not that we're suggesting you I'm should. I'm not. I'm not for things. it. But if you're going to, don't steal things. But if you're going, to, don't do it like that. Don't do it like that. So, he's held in a Pennsylvania prison. Pennsylvania, hands him over to Texas. He goes back to Galveston. So now, for those of you who are following along. We're basically around episode two of the Jinx series. I'm going to try to keep you updated about where things are in case you want to check it out. Um, so we meet here Dick DeGarren, who is Bob's lawyer, who I I don't like him, but I like him so much. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? That's, yes. I understand exactly <laughs> what you're saying. So... I'll, exp- I'll explain that at some point. So he starts off this episode basically by saying Robert had had rough times and people who knew would be sympathetic, which is immediately setting up, you know, setting him up to make excuses for his behavior, which is what a good lawyer will do. Right. But plenty of people have rough lives and don't kill people. Alleg- allegedly. Right. And then disappear. But here's where we start to dive into his childhood. So Seymour and Bernice Durst are Robert's parents. Robert's mother died when he was seven. According to him, he was present for it. So the immediate family includes Bob being the oldest, Douglas being two years younger, a younger sister and a younger brother. He does not mention them by name. So Robert says his memories of the time he spent with his mother were happy. The story of Robert's mother's death as told by Robert is as follows. This is a direct quote right out, right out of his mouth. My father came and got me, and he said, come on over here, see Mommy. And we looked out a hall window out onto the roof, and there was Mommy. And I waved at Mommy. I don't know if she saw me. It never went through my mind that, what is she doing out on the roof in her nightie? And I just didn't focus on me. There's Mommy. Wave at Mommy. Okay, now go on back to bed. All of a sudden, I heard the maid shouting, she's off the roof. It was a long, long fall. Horrible. So apparently... The adults there reported it as a fall, but Robert brings up suicide, naturally. Um, The thing that is weird to me about his recollection, not so much about his recollection, but what, what was his father doing? Like, he had knowledge of her being on the roof, he does nothing, and then goes and gets his son and waves to the mom. Yeah. Like, what is, I don't... It seems kind of strange. It's weird. But here's the thing. After the documentary came out, Robert's brother, Douglas, said, that is just not true. Mm. Do you know this part? Interesting. I, I yes, I you remember have, this. I, okay, I do remember that. So he said the four siblings were all together and were at a neighbor's house. 
yes, the mother's death was mysterious. He didn't really speak to that. Mm-hmm. But he is adamant that his brother did not win, uh, witness the death of their mother. So either Bob made it up or the family is covering it up. And also his dad is the biggest asshole hmm. on the planet, but right, not any longer because really he that. is pretty dead. Yeah, I think he is gone. Okay. All right. So, so um, Robert goes on to talk about how he attended his mother's funeral at the age of seven, which I can't imagine that must have been very rough regardless of anything else um after that he says he started running away from school from home police even had to be called and that's a really hard thing to go through at that age right you know at really any age but at seven oh god so robert claims his dad wasn't present with him or his brothers or sisters really at any point in their lives but especially from this point on now Let's talk about Kathy Durst, Kathleen, Bob's first wife. She is described by others as outgoing, social, friendly, and smart. Kathy's mother believes that Bob is the key to finding out where Kathy is. So I mentioned how people described Kathy. This is how people described her. Bob is self-described as not outgoing and freely admits to not getting along with people. He just is, he's like, I don't get we just don't get along with anyone so in the jinx i believe it's one of kathy's close friends who's doing kind of like voiceovers um from kathy's diary the first one talks about how her and bob met in new york city where bob was visiting from vermont um he had a health food store up there so one of the entries states um she went on two dates with him and then he asked her to move in with him in vermont and she did Mm mm-hmm in January 1972. Didn't they originally meet when he was collecting rent? Did she live in one of the Durst buildings? I don't know. Wasn't that in the movie? I think so. There was a movie. So not the documentary. There was a movie. I remember it. And he had dogs. Yes, he had the husky or something. He had Dobermans, oh, I thought. Then they had a husky later. Did they? There was a husky. <laughs> Somewhere. <laughs> don't remember the facts, but I remember the I remember pets. The do- I always remember the dogs. Yeah. So, <laughs> just remember the pets. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I don't know about the rent part. I don't know if that's true. But, meh. Proceed. So, Kathy's brother and mother both agree with Bob and say he wasn't friendly. So, <laughs> he's looking so good. I feel like Bob makes himself very unlikable. Or he doesn't need to make himself unlikable here, like, in the interview. Because he just is. Mm-hmm. He's just plain unlikable. Yeah. Um. In the interview clips, he he talks about how he was forced to spend time with Kathy's family and he was so disinterested in doing so. And he said, I just couldn't do it. You're you're a schmuck. And her family seems lovely from all of the interviews that I've ever seen. Yeah, her brother. They seem really nice. I think they all seem so, just like a great family, like great close family. Okay. Um... Yeah, it's really, it's a shame. You get to, they talk a lot to her mom and her brother. And they really, they do just seem like nice people. Um, The thing is, like, the way he's describing himself, it says so much about his personality. He does what he wants on his own terms. He does not give a shit if anybody else likes that or not. Normally, I say that about people in a good way. Not so much here. (laughs) He likes control. He will not be controlled. And we're going to see more of that as well. 
Um, referencing one particular instance, he said when he and Kathy were driving back from spending time with her family, she was very upset and crying, saying her family was good people and why couldn't he just put up with it for a few hours? He declined to talk about it. That's how he described it. He, there was a parallel drawn between like his father, right? Mm -hmm. He was that type of person where like if something was wrong or something was upsetting or someone wanted to talk to him or confronted him, he just wouldn't talk about it. And that's what he's doing as well. Right. I don't want to talk about it. Um, so Andrew Jarecki, who was the, the maker, the creator of the jinx, and he's also the interviewer, um, asks Bob what he would say if he was talking to Kathy's mother today. He said, Bob, that he felt bad about the way he treated her and that she was a good person. He then said, I am complicit in Kathy's not being here. What does that mean? What do you mean by that? <sighs> okay. So I know you're all smart. We're all smart people, right? But just to really just driving home here. Complicit, by definition, is involvement in a wrongful act or you're involved with others in a wrongful act. So, whether he intended to or not, he said, he's complicit. He's part of the reason. That's what he's saying. I'm part of the reason she's not here. That's what he said. Mm -hmm. Right? We go further. The next frame is a family friend. Her name is Geraldine McErnie? McInerney? Okay. Something with the Mick. I like that. <laughs> McDonald's? No. That's just delicious. <laughs> so, she says she was the last person to see Kathy in New York. She said when they were last together, they were at her residence. As soon as she got in the door, Kathy called Bob saying she had gotten there. She was there. Um, Already that's problematic. Well, yeah. When Geraldine asked her if she always did that, she said, oh, yes, he always likes to know where I am. She was saying how they were going to go up to their South Salem home the next day, and she didn't want to go. But when Geraldine suggested she not go, Kathy's reaction indicated that that was not an option. So in Geraldine's words, she said that Kathy told her he would kill me. Just from that. Yikes. Just that. So another friend, I'm going to say is Gilberta, even though the name ends with an E. We talked about this before. Sure. Um, she was hosting a party for her family. This is in, um, more in the South Salem region. So they had gone upstate, right? So the friend is there. Um, Kathy called her and she was like, I can't be here. Like, I need to get out of here. So Goberta was like, come on over. My family's here, but you come over too. Um, Goberta, uh, Goberta said everything was fine. Everyone was having a nice time. Bob called the house several times during this. She also said that Kathy was visibly shaken from the calls and finally decided to leave because that's what Bob wanted. That's when Kathy told her, if something happens to me, promise you'll check it out. I'm afraid of Bobby. Major red flag. Yes. So now in the timeline, uh, the timeline of the documentary isn't super clear. They don't like date stamp it, but it appears as though the next day after the party, was the day that Gilberta was supposed to meet Kathy in the city for lunch. Okay. It looks like it's supposed to be the next, the next day. day. She waited and waited and waited, but Kathy did not show up. 
What a terrible feeling. Yeah, I can't imagine. So Robert calls Kathy's brother um, and asks if he knows where Kathy is. That's the next thing that happens. So Robert uh, actually files a police report at the 9th Precinct and a missing persons report is filed. So here's the timeline of what occurs the last night that Kathy was seen, according to Bob. Kathy came back home from the Gilbertas around 7.30. She appeared to have been drinking, but she was not drunk. They ate something and then headed out to the train station about 8.30. He believes she got on the train back to New York City. He returned to the house, saw a neighbor, and had a drink with him. Then he went for a walk, called Kathy from a payphone. That's about 11.15. He talked to Kathy. Kathy stated she was fine watching TV. Bob goes home and goes to sleep. Okay. So now there's some news clips. The state, um, that states police believe she made it back to the city. The doorman at her building saw her at 1130. He did see her? Well, that's what this clip says. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, Kathy was a fourth year at the Einstein, like, medical... School of Medicine. School of Medicine. It got deleted here. Sometimes my cats step on the keyboard. There's <laughs> nothing I can do about it. Something along those lines. It says Einstein blank of medicine. So school. I would insert school into that. Sure. Part. That makes sense. Um, so this, I believe, is the next day as well from there. Kathy called the dean to tell him she couldn't come in because she was sick. This is the last time anybody had contact with her. Her. Right. Air quotes. So obviously people are concerned. They try to find her. There's no crime scene, no phone activity, no credit card, nothing. So now they show an interview with a retired officer, Michael Strzok, who investigated the case. He was giving some theories. I like this part a lot. I think I texted you about it when it happened. Uh, he was giving some theories of maybe why she disappeared. Um, and when giving a reason why she would leave or, like, why anyone would leave a situation or a husband or whatever, yeah. he goes, maybe she was just tired of him. Maybe this guy's just a banana. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I do remember that text. Well said, detective. Well said. But he said it with his, like, so as you know, for the 700th time, we're from Long Island, but there is something about a New York City accent and not just that but of like a detective <laughs> that makes that statement so much better do you know sure. what I mean and I can't I would not try to do it for you no. but it wouldn't do it justice no just go find it yourself because <laughs> I'm gonna call everyone a banana from now on and also I want to sound really aggravated when I'm saying it because it, it's better it makes way. it better when you sound really mm -hmm. serious I'm anyway. very angry when you say it. <sighs> that wasn't really a I just wanted to add that. It's not really important to anything. So apparently uh, from the news footage, authorities were not taking her disappearance seriously and that they kept saying they didn't suspect foul play. Right? Why? Just immediately. So according to Kathy's brother, she kept problems between her and Bob to herself. So here in the documentary, we hear Kathy's spring 79 diary entry. They had been drinking. There was an argument. 
and he slaps her. In the fall of 79, there was a sober argument and he punched her. So things are starting to escalate, right? So again, here we have Michael Strzok. He's the investigator of this case. Um, Friends of Kathy's met with him repeatedly to kind of press him. They told him stories of Kathy being hit and they didn't feel like they were getting anywhere. So frustrated, they decided to take matters into their own hands. I love that. Right? So her friends took the train she took. They went to that train station. They took the same time um, train, same train. They showed her picture around. They asked around. Um, this is, a lot of this is Gilberta, but she has other great friends as well. I think there were three other women who were like very involved. Um, Gilberta says she waited by the medical center and asked several workers if Kathy was there, hoping to hear that she was. Just doing whatever they could to, yeah. to find her. They went to look at the reservoirs. They looked for tire tracks. So I this I love. Kathy's other friend, Ellen, along with Gilberta, drove to the South Salem house and stole the garbage. <laughs> That's amazing. Which is probably illegal if it's not at the street. Ladies, do what you gotta do. That is amazing. Don't break the law. But also, if your friend is missing and nobody's giving you answers, take a little garbage. Don't break the law. <laughs> But, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe find a way for it to fall down in the street. I don't know. (laughs) So they sorted through the garbage. The way they described this, they put down, I don't know, like garbage bags or what, or like plastic. They just like dumped it on one of their kitchen floors and they were going through it. Um, But they found something troubling. Things. Bob was throwing out Kathy's clothes and books, her school books. Which is a weird-ass thing to do if your wife is missing and you have no idea where she went and you're hoping she comes back. How long had she been missing at that point when he started throwing out the clothes? I'm not 100% sure because I feel like I feel like a little time had to have passed, right? Because you're not just going to go through someone's garbage as a first resort. But it wasn't ye- a year. No. Years. No, no, no. Yeah. It was probably like a... Maybe like a month to a few months. Okay, so you'd be expecting and hoping that the person would come back. But even point, not like right? even if someone is confirmed like gone, right? Like passed away, whatever. A lot of people have trouble getting rid of people's right. items. So the fact that you're just like, meh, it's taking up space in my house. Like what? Anyway, very disturbing. <laughs> right. So they find something even more horrifying. A note. Do you remember the, this note? Refresh my memory. I didn't remember it. Um, it was in Bob's writing. It said in a list form, town dump, bridge, dig, boat, other, shovel, or question mark, and then something unintelligible, and then the word wrench. Right? Oh, my God. What the hell does that mean? it's circumstantial evidence it is but why is that in a in the same trash with all of Kathy's shit a list of ways to dispose of someone that is horrible why would you write that down because he's an idiot right sorry I'm sorry for yelling everyone (laughs) (laughs) so sorry I'm angry about it too (laughs) so at this point, Gilberta 
freely admits to stalking Bob. <laughs> right? Good. Aren't these the kind of friends you want to have? Yes. Right? Absolutely. If something terrible happens to you, you need those friends that are going to show up and stalk the guy who did it. Everyone wants those friends. Right? So she goes on to say she was waiting outside um, his building, and she tried to be nice to him, even though it, like, I think she said something she wanted to throw up or something, but she mm. was like, oh, you know, trying to loosen him up, trying to, how are you doing, mm. that whole thing. Smart. Um, she got nothing. But she tried. Right? Um, Kathy's family tried to contact Bob repeatedly, but he never picked up the phone. They finally got in contact with Seymour Durst, that's Bob's dad, again, they were invited over and asked him, can you help? What can you do? Do you know anything? Kathy's brother said he came off as almost defensive and very lacking in empathy, which does not surprise me from the way that Bob described him. But another Durst comes in, I believe the youngest brother, and asked what was going on. When he was told what they were talking about, he said this discussion is over. And that's not Douglas. There's a younger There's brother? There's the younger okay. brother that he never names. So... Um, so at this point, we cut back to a voiceover of Bob who says, if she met some normal type guy from Long Island, she would have had an average life, but it was finding me. And then the whole scenario just kept getting worse and worse. I just want to say, what normal guys from Long Island, Bob? <laughs> that's, that's one. Where are those? Can you tell me where they are? I mean, yeah, they're, I mean, we're not sure. No. They're few and far between. Who did he mean? Billy Joel? (laughs) Like, (laughs) that's weird. Anyway, I see, I keep saying, anyway, you guys are going to have to get over it. That's all there is. Are you eating fruit out of your cup? Okay. Yeah, some ice and green. Great. So, Andrew Jarecki, again, interviewer, documentary maker extraordinaire, asks Bob what the dynamic of his and Kathy's relationship was. Bob calls himself the dominant one, the one who made the decisions and called the shots. And that's what he said Kathy would say as well. She got tired of it after a while. She wanted to be independent. She didn't want him to control her. These, again, are things that he's saying. Mm -hmm. So he has to recognize how he is, how he's treating another person. Right. Like, he's already saying, I don't like this. I don't like this. She does this. She doesn't want me to control her. So he is controlling her. Trying to control her. Right. So Bob said Kathy first started changing when he made her get an abortion. His words. He made her. They had apparently agreed early on if she would ever get pregnant, she would have an abortion. And when the time came, that's not what she wanted. Um, Bob, again, in his own words, in the documentary, said she is in charge of her body, but he would divorce her if she had the baby. Who says that? decision (laughs) is that? No one, no, no one, no, he's horrible. He is. He was really adamant about not wanting kids. When pressed further, he said he thought having kids would be a jinx. He said that. Oh. Mm-hmm. He knew he wouldn't be a good father. And I guess well, on that front, good for him. Probably a fact. Yeah. Probably a fact. <laughs> I think it's pretty clear to everyone else that he's not fit to even have like a pet gerbil. No. No. Absolutely not. <laughs> no. So, Jarecki asks Bob about the first time he hit Kathy. Bob says he doesn't remember the first time, but he remembers other times. Oh. That's good, right? That's great. He said they fought pretty regularly, and it was physical, slapping, hitting, pushing, wrestling, etc. 
What? What kind? He of, says that. What? He, he just admits Freely it. Freely admits it. This happens. What kind of a man? I mean, wow. <sighs> no. Wow. So, Bob goes on to recount the last night he saw Kathy. He said, uh, she asked if he wanted to go to Gilberta's. He said no. When she came back, she had been drinking and she was angry with him and told him she wanted to go to the city. He said they fought that night physically. Um, she wanted to take the car back to the city and he did not want her to take the car. So she finally agreed to take the train back. Um, the 9-11 train from Katona. So he goes, he talks to her on the phone as I mentioned before, about 11.15, he says after that, she wouldn't answer his calls. But this was in the land before people had cell phones. Um, and he, you know, so he meant that he was calling the house or their apartment, whatever the, the case. He also said he wasn't worried because she was interning at the hospital, which involves staying over some nights. Um, he said he got a call from the medical school that they hadn't heard from her in several days. So then he talked to his father and brother. He allegedly tried to, um, his father and brother tried to deter him from reporting her missing to the police so they didn't get any press. That's so sad. Yeah. So sad. That's what you're worried about. Well, yeah, but those, those are like the people who... I was going to make a coronavirus thing. No, it's fine. We're not going to talk about that. We're going to keep that to ourselves. Just like saying if you want to open up at the expense of everyone's health because you want to make money. I'm just kidding. I'm not kidding. That's very serious. But that's not about what we're talking about today. Anyway. I'll just sit here and drink my sangria. Just drink your sangria and mm-hmm. wash your hands. Wash your hands. We wash our hands a lot nowadays. My al- nice alligator skin hands now. <laughs> so... Uh, finally, Bob said he was worried enough to go to the 20th precinct anyway, so he did not listen to his family. Um, but he also said they didn't take the disappearance seriously. So, they also show again Detective Michael Strzok saying at this point, when he spoke to Bob, there was nothing to indicate he was being deceptive at that time. There was nothing that he said that kind of gave him a flag. So Andrew then asked Bob uh, about what he did after dropping Kathy at the train. So according to Bob, after he dropped her off, he came back and went to the neighbors for a drink. That's what he said before, right? That didn't happen. He admits that it did not happen. He says it. He said he went home and went to sleep, but he told police he went to the neighbors because he thought it would make it all go away and that they would leave him alone. Those are his words again. So when they ask the neighbor if he had a drink with Bob and they say no. They actually didn't check for a while. They just took him at his word. That's what happens when you're a rich white man. (laughs) That's the question, right? To the neighbor. It's not. I guess they thought the way he was coming off and because like a family like that, especially in a city, like they must be so powerful that they're like, we're not going to dig around so much, okay. you know. That's probably what he was counting on as well. Yes, you're right? pro- I'm sure that's what he, that must have been what he was counting yeah. on. Yeah, so. Yeah, basically he said they he thought they would not look further into him if he said he was with other people. So there's some discussion here about speaking to Kathy on the phone, right? Mm-hmm. So Bob said he called her from a payphone after he went for a walk. She answered the phone that, quote, puts her in the city. That's what he said. Okay. He admits he never spoke to her that night. What? 
he admits that he never spoke to her. He just made it all up because I'm shaking my head. He didn't want people to bother him, but that's the thing. If you have information, like if someone you care about goes missing and you have any information, you want to pass along the most accurate information because even if you don't know where they are, you want them to find her. Of course. You want to tell them anything and everything. Or do you? Well, not if you, not if you did it yourself. Right. Allegedly. Allegedly. So, I was trying to track this date down. It, it was hard to find. There's so many things to sift through. It looks like in early 2000, Kathy's case resurfaces. Okay. Yeah, I like that. So, there's a new detective. His name is Joe Becerra. That's a name I can say. He arrested a man on repeated public lewdness charges. Um, before he was sentenced, he asked to speak to Joe. He told him he had knowledge of a woman being murdered in northern Westchester. Uh, he had heard there was a young woman named Kathy Durst who had been murdered by her husband in South Salem. This is what he said. Okay. So Joe Becerra contacts all of Kathy's friends, Gilberta, Eleanor, and Karen. I think there was an Ellen as well. Okay. Okay. Um, he talked to her family. He was talking to everyone. They went back to look at the house. The owner let them in. Not sure if it's the same owner who oh, he was up in their backyard. Mm-hmm. I don't know if she sold the house after that because she was like, no, thank out. you. Oh, bummer. <laughs> right? Um, unfortunately, nothing was found in the house. It's really unfortunate that nobody looked into it earlier. No one ever searched it before. Nobody ever searched the house. No, they didn't look into it. Um, there very well may have been something there. Maybe if they had looked wow. at it before, they would have found... Him finding, uh, throwing out all her shit. Right? right, of course. But, whatever. Um, and also, FYI, the name of the man arrested who gave that initial information, his name was Timothy Martin, just in case you want to know the name of the man who was arrested for repeated public lewdness. I did want to know that. Yeah, just, you know. Thank you for telling me. So here, we meet, or maybe some of us are already familiar with, Janine Pirro. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Judge Janine. Judge Janine. She is the district attorney at the time. Um, She went on to be a judge. She's famous. She has a show. Mm -hmm. Right? Wild. She's a a tough cookie, that one. She is a tough cookie. Yes. Um, No question. No. There's interview footage where Bob is talking about how they searched the house. They searched the lake, but they didn't find anything. Andrew asks him something like, what do you think they were hoping to find? That's a fair question. Great question. Bob literally says, this isn't funny. It's just the delivery. So I don't, it's not funny. But the delivery, he just goes, body parts. <laughs> right. Or something they could use. That's his answer. So why is that the thing you say? If somebody, again, we've made a few parallels before but if someone close to me goes missing i'm assuming until proven otherwise that their body is whole and they're just missing you would assume and it's also interesting now that we know there's another instance of him dismembering someone yes so look at you connecting those dots i did but can you connected them why you wouldn't because so and so many things could happen to someone i would never think i would never think that somebody was 
it, it dismembers. Anything could happen. Never. That's the last thing you want to think. No, when that's you stay horrible. up at night and you start having intrusive thoughts, that's when you might think they're dismembered. Maybe. But in the meantime, but that's, yeah. So, when Joe Becerra interviews Kathy's friends, they all point him in the direction of one person. Who? Do you know who it is? Who is it? Susan Berman. Here is where Susan Berman enters the story. Welcome, Susan Berman. You're a very important part of the story. She is a very important part of this story. So they told him that Susan and Bob were very close friends, and if anyone knew anything, it would have to be her. So a little background just on their relationship. So Susan um, met Bob at UCLA in the late 60s. That's correct, right? They 60s? Go, they go way back. They go way back. They became fast friends. She had lost both of her parents at a young age. He had lost one of his, so they kind of bonded over that. Susan came from money. She grew up in Las Vegas with her father, who was apparently, not just apparently, he was actually a big shot in the mob. Yeah. Like, actually. Um, Susan wrote a book called Easy Street, and she didn't find out that her dad was a, quote, gangster until she was 21. She loved her father. They had, as far as we know, a great relationship. Some have drawn parallels between her father and Bob. So, like, rich, powerful, connected. Mm. Right? She's kind of drawn to that. Um, Bob said after Kathy disappeared, the media kept calling him, and he didn't want to deal with any of that, which seems to be one of his trademarks. He never wants to deal with anything. Just like a man. Sorry. <laughs> um... He's pretty antisocial. He just doesn't like people. Right. So he passed that on to Susan, who was all too happy to handle press and media on his behalf. She was a writer. I have heard a lot of mention of screenplays and journalism. So she was definitely more comfortable in that world. Was she on a talk show or two? I definitely have seen her on interviews. They, talk, they talked right. about her book, though. Uh, okay. And I think she wrote for some newspapers. Right. She, okay. she so did maybe... work on screenplays. I don't know if anyone ever... Any of them ever took off right. or anyone bought them or no, anything. Um, so when the news came a call in the media, she shared the same story as Bob did, which placed Kathy in the city saying she got back to the city alive. So they talk about other people in the city. So the doorman. Yes. Right. Doorman. The phone call with Bob, the phone call Kathy herself made to the medical school saying she was ill. So here's the thing. Ready? The doorman never saw her and admitted to that later. I think initially he had said he thought he saw her and they just took that oh, and kind of spun and it. That got, yeah. Yeah. Um, so after years and new information, law enforcement is quoted as saying they have their money on Susan Berman making the call to the medical center as Kathy. Wow. Kind of helping with the, the cover-up there for her right. pal. But wait, there's more. Wow. Investigators found out that not long before Kathy went missing, she had asked Bob for a divorce. Not surprising, given <sighs> no, all he's of the facts. a major tool, yes. right? <laughs> um, which he did not want. So she had gotten a lawyer and everything. Like, she was ready to go. Bob turned down their request for an agreement or settlement only three days before she goes missing. Come on, Bob. <laughs> I mean, like, no one's going to think that you 
But it's weird that this came out so much later. It's terrible that it came out so much later. No, I know, but I'm like, maybe she didn't, I don't think she's holding anyone close to her. Because maybe even for the time, there's still stigma around divorce, you know? Maybe oh, she Kathy didn't really... didn't tell anybody she wanted No, because pe no one else brought that up. Like, they had to find out through other oh, okay. channels. Right. You know what I mean? Um, she went upstate with him. Also, can I just I'm, interject yes. one thing? If, if you're getting a divorce, tell people about it. Don't let your husband be the only one who knows, and then if something happens to you and no one figures this out, just tell everyone. Tell the world. That's a good idea. The same goes for insurance policies. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Just tell let people world, know. You know, no let everyone insurance know. policies. Nothing no. like that. No. The more you know, <laughs> the more you know, the better off you are. Pro tips. The more your friends know. Yeah. Okay, go on. Sorry. Um, what was I saying? So they just went up to see it anyway. After that, she went with him, because she felt like she had no choice. So... Which is great. Um, Bob says, now, and I know we're flip-flopping a little between what was and more present day. Bob says um, that aside from just being in a bad marriage, which is probably mostly his fault, he did not have anything to do with Kathy's disappearance. Despite everything else that he said. I know I'm, I'm trying to present this, like, unbiasedly. Which is not really word. It's very hard because there's so much evidence to the contrary. It's very hard. Right? So, next, because there, there's still more, still more coming. There's more. Um, investigators find collect calls in the Durst organization's phone records. They notice a few from the day after Kathy's disappearance from a place called Ship Bottom, New Jersey, from a payphone in a laundromat. What's interesting about that is that only Bob or Seymour called the Durst organization collect. They're the only ones. Because otherwise is, they wouldn't even accept the calls. Yes, which is so interesting because yeah. of all this money that they have and they still feel the need to have the company pay for their phone calls. Well, that's why they have money, right? <laughs> that's true. Um, the, next, the next thing for you, Ship Bottom, New Jersey is actually a known dumping ground for the mob. So there's potentially a link back to Susan Berman, who still very much had connections and may have gotten information. Um, I can hear in his voice him like, Susan, like, what? Yes, that's what very, do I do with the body? Like, that's exactly what he sounds like. <laughs> no, and no, it is. And when you texted me saying that you read something that somebody wrote that sounds like if a spider could speak, <laughs> that's what... <laughs> Bob's voice sounds like that is very much factually correct. Please listen to him speak and so, you'll see exactly what we're talking just about. Just so someone, there was a clip. I was looking for some some particular piece of information that he said, and I found it on YouTube. Just to just so you know where this comment came from, and you know, as one does when you're watching a YouTube clip, I always do scroll down and I look at some of the comments as I listen. And the very first comment under this one particular snippet of this documentary said something like, ugh, it looks like someone taught a spider how to speak English or something <laughs> like that. And I was like, that's exactly... <laughs> On the nose. He's such a... Mm, On the nose. I don't know. It's just weird, look but it he... Up. Just yeah. look it up. I can't do it justice, so just look it up. So... Next, we're going to move on to Susan Moves. She was in New York for a period of time. 
she moved to LA. Can't find the year. Couldn't find it. Looked all over. Couldn't find the year. Um, Benedict Canyon is in specific where she moved to. So Susan told Bob the police had contacted her and wanted to talk to her about Kathy's disappearance. On December 24th, 2000, police got a call to check out a house with his door just sitting open. When they arrived, they discovered a body on the floor with a single gunshot wound to the head. It was Susan Berman. The house, this is kind of interesting, had no heat, was kind of bare, but nothing was missing. Nothing had been disturbed. The front door was locked. So based on that, it appeared that whoever had been in there with Susan was let in by Susan. Mm. Right. No first entry. Yes. So the timing is interesting here because authorities were about to speak with her about Kathy's disappearance, but also at that time, apparently she had been working on a piece that had to do with the mob. So some speculated maybe it could have been like a mob hit. Mm. Right. Now. Interesting timing. Beverly Hills. You know where this is going. Mm -hmm. Receives a piece of mail. Right. The envelope says Beverly spelled B-E-V-E-R-L-E-Y. As opposed to just the, the no E and just the There's Y. There's an extra E in there. Right. The note says Susan Berman's address and the word cadaver. The letter is postmarked the day before Susan's body is discovered. Investigators speculate that the person who sent the letter cared about Susan and didn't want her body just laying around. Right, because why else would you, if you're going to murder someone that you don't care about, you would just leave? I would just leave them anyway. It's <laughs> <laughs> not funny. I'm so sorry. It's a no. I mean, well, no. In the, I'm just going to say, and just for the record, everyone, ladies and gentlemen and all in between, I have taken forensic classes and I know a lot about psychology. I'm just saying in the interest of not getting caught, which I am again not condoning, I don't think it's a good idea to notify anyone, right? Just keep your head down. Stop eating egg salad. <laughs> just stop it. I mean, so from a from a another good life tip. Yeah. Just don't eat egg salad and keep your goddamn head down. Yeah, that's it. Right? That's it. All right. Don't write weird letters. Don't show up at strangers. This homes. is turning into a weird thing. Quick sidebar. When I was in 11th grade, my favorite teacher I ever had was my criminal justice teacher, Mr. Trachtenberg, who, while teaching us about criminal justice and criminology, wound up accidentally teaching us how to get away with crimes. And I feel like that's kind of what I'm starting to do. And I don't mean to. Um, but that's how I was taught. <laughs> so. Well, it does make for interesting conversation. <laughs> yeah. He did a lot of that by accident. Um, anyway. So Susan, back to Susan Berman here. Got a little off track. Um, Susan had been having money problems. She had been asking people for money. She was behind in rent. She actually kept logs of people who sent her money. Bob was on there for $50,000. Wow. One of her friends stated that Susan could be manipulative and could certainly imagine her maybe putting a little pressure on Bob to send her money 
by maybe suggesting more money could keep her from telling the police anything. Oh, that was not smart. Yeah. So a memorial service was held for Susan. Bob did not go, which is odd based on their close relationship. That is very odd, yes. So other weird fact, Susan's stepson reached out to Bob because he was reaching out to everyone about Susan's death. Um, And he and Bob actually went to dinner. That's right. I remember that. It's kind of weird, right? Yeah. Uh, Susan's friends felt weird about that considering all the circumstances. Bob even gave him $25,000 a year for four years for college. Very odd. I feel like that's a guilt move. Well, it is. If You you won't even buy your own exiled sandwich, but you'll give someone $25,000 a year? I mean... For four years. Yeah, that looks very suspicious. Yeah. Let's just be honest. Oh, speaking of that, we're about to, we're about to go back to that sandwich. Mm. Um, he implied... After he was caught in Pennsylvania, that he in- intended to skip out on bail once he posted bail in Texas. It's going to come around. Because okay. I said sandwich, right? And then uh-huh. it's going to come around. Okay. But he said that. He was like, yeah, when I posted bail, I was gone. I was going to bounce. Happen. But then he said, I don't know what gave me the idea to shoplift a sandwich from Wegmans. <laughs> but I did, and it was a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> that was a mistake. But picture a spider saying it. (laughs) Like a, I don't know, like a weird, kind of like an old-timey, like a 40s spider. I don't know how to describe it. Yeah. Anyway. It's hard. (laughs) It's hard to describe. There's a lot, a lot going on. Right. Um, He had also shaved his head and his eyebrows to disguise himself. I mean, he probably tend to stand out more without any eyebrows but i was gonna say like because i feel like you draw more attention because you look maybe really sickly like people would be like do you are you okay do you could with no hair as well like do we need to get you to the hospital like what what's going on um so i think i skipped telling you where episode three was but you you guys can figure it out you're smart episode four they open like, I'm just telling you about a, about a movie now. Open on. They found nothing in the lake. They looked in the lake um, by Kathleen's house, right? So jumping around a little bit, Bob's trial, we're back in Texas. So, refresher. Morris Black, murder, dismemberment. Bob was only charged with murder, right? He's charged with murder. Um... Kathy's friends went to the trial in Texas. What is his defense? Sympathy, basically. And they talk about... This is more like Bob's lawyers from that trial, right? In this segment, they're talking about um, their experience with that. Trying to make it look like Janine Pirro wanted to use him to further her career. Right? Um, They claim... Bob claims or they claim that she drove him from New York and there was no evidence he was responsible for Kathy's disappearance. Like they were trying to make it like she was bullying him. Right. And like harassing him, which like, sure, she had much better things to do with her time, but whatever. So people working on his defense team admitted they took liberties. They admitted this. They took liberties with how direct her involvement even was with the case and turned her into their words 
a mythical creature. They said this. Yeah. They were very, very good at what they what But, they like, did. my thing... So this is probably a story for another time. But my thing is... Why, like, why do you say that even after? I feel like right. that's weird. Why are you admitting that at all? And I feel... I don't think that qualifies as, like, double jeopardy. Like, I don't think they could retry him, even if they were like, we lied. Right. But. Right. Because I might have mentioned this before, but when I went to see the staircase thing. Right. I told you about it. I don't know if I told you all about it. Um, The lawyers, whose names escape me from the staircase, um, Peterson's lawyer and um, Steve Avery's lawyer for making a murderer, they did, like, talks. They went around doing talks. And Peterson's lawyer, Robert Peterson, is that his name? Um, I haven't looked into that case for a while. Anyway, his lawyer was so committed to the story he told on the stand, he did not deviate. This is years later, right? He did not deviate from that story. He tried so hard to sell the owl theory in person. I was so disgusted by the amount of lies coming out of his face, but he was so like, I think I was, I leaned over to my friend and I was like, does he believe what he's saying? Like he, I don't, I don't think we can even get into that owl theory on this. We're not going to get into the owl theory. That's a whole other, (laughs) it's a whole different, that's a whole other thing. But the point is that even years later, even after the case was closed, even though it's bullshit and he's a smart man. So I have to believe that he knows that is bullshit too. He's stuck to the story. So I'm saying these people are like, oh, no, we made it up. Like, that's weird to me. Yeah. it's, it's Like, they have to impress me. I'm like, you guys, that's very weird to me. You could do better, guys. That you would do that. Why Why have you stopped trying to impress me? So. It's, it's surprising. It, it no was question. very surprising that they just said that. No because question. they heavily implied that they lied. Yep. They, they did. Um, in court, because of the way that he was painted by his lawyers... When he talked about his disguise as an old woman and what he bought and where he bought it, the jury laughed. Like, that's how much they were on his side. That's disturbing. Right. Why would they? Because of the the sympathy and they made him out to be like a sympathetic character. And he, I think he said something like, I was a very ugly woman. Like, he said something. And they laughed. And like, where did you buy your purse? That's not a good sign. And they laughed. Um... And that's exactly because of his, wow. again, his lawyers. They did an amazing job. They did an amazing this job. Man, Spider. Air quotes, allegedly. Murdered and dismembered his neighbor. Yeah. Wow. Um, so Morris Black is painted as a grumpy old dude. At, and he was known to be one. Like, a lot of people knew him to be that. Um, Bob claims they became friends and hung out all the time. As time went on, Bobbed, Bobbed, that's not a thing. Okay. Bob dropped his disguise, and him and Morris talked about it. I don't know how much. Um, but there's not even that much talk about that. Like, you, you, you're you living as a woman who's impaired, like, hearing impaired, and you can't speak, whatever. Um, or it was just deaf. Mute. No, mute. Yeah. Yes. I had it backwards. But then you just, like, drop it one day, and no one really... That's not, like, a big thing. Hey, Morris, I was just joking. He's like, oh, okay, let's be best friends now. I don't whatever. I have a spider voice. <laughs> Hope you like spiders. <laughs> so, 
Um, according to Bob, this is what happened leading up to the murder. They were in Bob's apartment. Morris got an eviction notice and showed it to Bob. He is upset about it. Bob at some point goes in the bathroom. He hears a gunshot. He comes out of the bathroom and Morris is standing there with a gun. Bob's like, what's going on? What are you doing? Put the gun down. Um, apparently Morris claims he had shot at the eviction notice. It seems... Very American. <laughs> it's very... It seems like a bit of an overreaction. <laughs> well, that's not what you do when you're upset? So, Bob... As I said, Bob's like, put the gun down. Um, Morris tells him he shot at the notice. And Bob tells him, you know what? That's over the line. You have to leave. Don't shoot things in my apartment. So, okay. a few days later, Bob comes home. His TV is on in his apartment. Morris is sitting at the table in Bob's apartment. He Do has... you have a key or... I don't. Did Bob leave the door open? Probably. We're not sure. Maybe he picked it with a hairpin from his old lady wig. I don't know. I don't know. Um, so he has a gun. Again, he is angry at Bob. He claims Morris came at him with the gun. They wrestle over the gun. They hit the floor or Bob hits the floor. And as they go down, the gun goes off and Morris gets shot. Um, so the DA here in this case say people never saw Bob and Morris together. And the DA suspects that Morris tried to blackmail him like a give me money or I'll let New York where you are type of situation after dropping the disguise. Right. right? Um, possible. So Morris had a number of bruises on his body, which their medical examiner said, probably is from a series of blows right which doesn't hold up with the gun not at all theory right if it was just as simple as a little tussle and as they fall right um particularly by his shoulders they said okay so that's interesting bob sticks to even with that information they fell down and apparently a neighbor said they heard two shots so it was just bob said one okay so there was a bullet hole in the wall leading from the living room living room to the kitchen. There were no bullet holes, however, in the eviction notice. <laughs> just in case. There's a shocker. Just in case anybody was wondering. That seems <laughs> right. like it happened. Right. So the DA goes on to say, you don't cut up a body and dump it in the bay if it was an accident. Which has always been one of my main points about why this is ridiculous. Yes. That's not something you do no. if there's an accident. No. Um, so to this, Bob basically says, well, if I call the police, they're going to be looking into me and find out who I am. That's his concern. That's his only concern. Right. But he's been so many different places. It's as so many different people. Why wouldn't he just leave and go somewhere else? Why stay there, chop up the body and then leave? I couldn't tell you. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. So... He also said it was too heavy to bring the body all together, right? So this is how you can kind of see how his mind works now. It's too heavy altogether. He said he thought about putting him in a sleeping bag and dragging him, but then he thought, quote, good God, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Again, that's ridiculous. Not laughing at, at murder or, or body parts. But that's what's ridiculous. A sleeping bag is the thing that, that puts you over that line. That's right. ridiculous. 
A sleeping bag is far less ridiculous than dismembering a human body manually when you allegedly accidentally kill somebody. Right? Right. Also, I don't really write anything about this. I don't really have any notes about it. But I want to just mention, in this documentary in particular, his tics. Right? He, he has have a lot of little... He tics. has a lot of tics. He... He's kind of twitching his eyes a lot. He, he like touches his face. He's fidgety. It's just a lot. And body language experts will tell you that those are indications of extreme discomfort or guilt. So you can chalk that up to him being antisocial. But he seems very open about giving an interview and leaving all this information out there. So if he was that nervous, maybe he wouldn't be that open. And didn't he want to do this to kind of clear his name? Is that why he did the doc? I mean, he willingly did this documentary, did he not? That's, he did. But it's wild to me. Like, I want to do this to clear my name and then say so many horrible things about yourself. Yeah. It's, it, none yeah. of it really makes, you know, no. sense. You it, would think this was kind of an expose that someone did on him, but not no. the case. He willingly signed up for it. He sure did. So the the way he talks about this, the things that happened with Morris in the interview and in the trial, it's, it's just, it's emotionless. It's matter of fact. Um, famous quote from the trial. Here's a quote that he said. I did not kill my best friend. I did dismember him. Wow. What? What do you mean? <laughs> like, I can't. So, this is what happens, right? He takes the body parts. He puts them in bags. He takes them to Galveston Bay. The bags didn't sink like he thought they would. They floated. He panicked. He saw that. He panicked, right? Uh, he returned the next day. And I believe that's when he saw it. I don't think he noticed at the time. I think he just kind of threw them. It was dark. He came back. Oh, um, right. So when he saw that, he decided to take the head. Because he realized that the body would probably very quickly be discovered. And the best way to avoid identification was to do that. So where did he put it? We don't, we don't know. Where did he put it? We don't know. Oh. Still. It doesn't come up again in the interview. Um... Which I imagine was like a strategic decision because they wanted to know more about him. So they didn't want to, right. you know. Um, but I know, so just imagine for a second, like the way, th this is a podcast, right? And we're telling you a story. It's a story about something that happened. But put yourself in those shoes for a minute. This is a man who really did th these things. Imagine yourself... Like a guided meditation, but far more horrible. <laughs> like on a dock or on a beach and there's body parts and you pick one up and there's a head inside. Like what type of person? Do you know what I mean? That's like, horrible. No, I know. Like, it's, I don't want to imagine that. No, I know, but it's a story. I want out of this guided meditation. <laughs> I want out of this, this app. Um, so, again, I just want to say... Bob has great lawyers. They're great. They're very, very, very good at what they do. Dick DeGarren, who is a precious 
Texas adorable old man who I hate so much. I hate him because he is doing a tremendous job for a monster, Mm -hmm. right? Because that's his job. He's doing a tremendous job. I don't know how he sleeps. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. But he... He is incredible at his job. He really is. So he and the team, not just him alone, somehow convinced the jury that the dismemberment of Morris Black's body and or anything that happened to his body after death didn't matter. All that mattered was the circumstances of his death. That's so crazy. So... It's crazy. I know you can't see me, but my mouth is just (laughs) hanging open right now. Just hanging open. It's crazy. It's crazy. Because you need to... You have to look at the circumstances as a whole to be able to to determine someone's state of mind. What's what's the intention? Right. What, What are they thinking? What are they doing? What's their motivation? So for them to somehow, with their magic words and beautiful texas accent <laughs> just be like you know what you know what got leaning on the jury box that doesn't that matter doesn't, don't worry about that. that don't worry about that don't wear your head about it i'm not doing an accent i would never you know and i've never heard of another case where a body was dismembered where they didn't charge them for something relating to that dismemberment well yes so here's the other thing the da here i'm so sorry terrible failure Because they should have charged him with everything. They could have charged him with littering. They didn't, they charged him with murder because they thought it was like a slam dunk. Mm. So when he got off for murder, which he did, he got off for this murder. He got off. They didn't even have anything else. And they couldn't charge him again with something else tied to it. So they dropped the ball here. Um... So I skipped ahead a little bit because I was so, so riled up. But I just wanted to bring up um, Bob's lawyers were also smart in bringing up that the investigators found nothing to disprove their theory of self-defense. Right. So they had to agree with that because it's it's true. There's no hard evidence of the actual that part of the actual murder that disproves self-defense. There's nothing. Right. And they really leaned on reasonable doubt. So here's another thing. So here's something Dick DeGaren said too. He said something along the lines of Bob is not guilty of murder. Whatever else he had done, like to the body is for another place in time. (laughs) When and where? If not now, when Dick, Wait, what? Like, when? I don't know, but he's so good at his presentation that people are like, oh. Sure he's like, okay, yeah, that sounds... You know, that's totally reasonable. I wonder if now they feel the same way, or now they're like, I was bamboozled. What happened to me? What? <laughs> was I, I was hypnotized? Felt. <laughs> what, ha- what happened? Yeah. So, at this point of the documentary, Andrew Jarecki asked Bob if he lied during the trial. Bob basically says, maybe... <laughs> I'm sorry. That's not the whole line, but it's funny. He goes, 
He goes, maybe, I have to think about it. <laughs> I'm so, it's, it's just so ridiculous. I mean, he's so honest at times, right? <laughs> so, but he's then too he's honest. also so dishonest at times. He's so honest that he's he totally gets in his way. At some point, I might be skipping ahead or whatever, but at some point he says something and his lawyer, because they're still rolling, like off screen was like, don't, don't do it. He was like making a motion at him. He was like, don't. I think his lawyer should have jumped in a couple more times than just that. Yeah, like his New York lawyers were not as great as Dick DeGaron and team. Might be the accent. He's the standout, our friend. Anyway, so back to back to what Bob was saying. I'm I'm so sorry to laugh, but he just says ridiculous things. Um, He says maybe he has to think about it, but he probably omitted things that would have made him look bad. (laughs) <laughs> right, so it's called a lie. That's what that is. So Andrew suggests they take a break. Bob is sitting in the chair. He's being interviewed in. So they do take a break, but the cameras are rolling. Right? He whispers to himself, which there's nothing weird or creepy about that. He said, I did not knowingly, purposefully lie. He says this twice. He then says, I did not knowingly, purposefully, intentionally lie. I did make mistakes. The episode ends by saying, Bob saying, nobody tells the whole truth. So that's a good sign. So for those of you keeping track, we are around somewhere around episode five. So now we have two other murders. I mean, some people do tell the whole truth. I like to think. Do they? depends. I don't know. Did I eat Oreos? Yes. Did I eat five? How many did you eat? No, I had two, but I really had five. So little things like that. But there's loopholes too. Because like how many did you eat? You just asked if I ate them. You didn't ask how many. Well, yeah. And also I didn't ask how many you ate today. So like in your lifetime, like what are we talking about? Right. Right. Um, so we're bouncing around the timeline a little bit again. So Nick Scapetto, we're back in New York, back in, back in the day is Bob's lawyer. Um, Bob said he was supposed to find Kathy and thereby solve his problems. He brought in a PI, private investigator, for you new kids, named Edward Wright. The documentary people were able to get a copy of Ed's reports from 1982. It states on there that there was, or were, discrepancies in the recollection of various principles. That's how they catalog it. But that means there's inconsistencies in Robert's account of what happened the night Kathy disappeared. You think? His own PI wrote that. That's what he said, right? Um, he even gave... So in the process of this private investigator looking into this, Bob gave him false information. Like, why did you even bring him? Why is he part of this if you're going to lie? So he told him he called Kathy from the house then called from a payphone in a restaurant, then finally the call from the payphone between the house and the train station. He's just making things up. Um, Bob's family never offered to help the investigators that we know of. There's nothing, you know, none of that ever happened. The private investigator was, in his words, mutually terminated. That's a good sign. Robert said... He had at least 10 meetings with the private investigator. His brother was there for at least half of them. 
right? So it kind of sounds like they're they're all part of it. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say that like that. I don't think they did anything bad to Kathy. I just they have big money. They want to protect themselves. They're right. just you they know weren't exactly the most helpful. <sighs> no. So now they kind of cut to. This has always stuck in my brain ever since back when this came out. Um, Robert's walking around the city. I feel like this is famous, very famous footage, right? Um, and the cameras were noticed. Douglas's security, so according to Robert, that's, he knew who they were. They appear and they follow the crew around. Which is interesting. It is interesting. Andrew Jarecki asked why they were following them. They didn't answer. So it comes up that Robert actually drove to his brother's home in Katona while he was on the run. He pulled into the driveway. He actually did. He had two guns in the car. And then, so they give that information. They put up on the screen a headline that said, Robert plans to knock off his brother. Then they play a prison call between Robert and wife, Deborah. Remember her? Yes, Deborah. That angel from before. That sweet baby <laughs> angel. Um, they're kind of speaking, not like in code, like you can kind of tell they're getting at something, but it seems like she was aware that he had some intentions mm. for, for them, for his brother. Um, but neither of them will say what. So back to that walking around Manhattan with the camera crew. Um, Bob actually makes them walk by Douglas's Manhattan residence and told them, he was like, get footage of me over here. Like, just weird. I forgot right? about that part. Yeah. Um, that was very strange. It's very strange. Like, look what I can do. Like, I don't know. Um, so, going back to... Again, flip-flopping. Bob finds out... So when Bob found out several years before that they were reopening the Kathy case, um, the next day he went and what and bought what is suspected was an engagement ring for Debbie. Just, I'm going to tie it together. Don't, oh, don't worry. Yep, oh, there, I see you where did you're it. going with this. So it appears... It appears mm. that the plan was spousal privilege. And Debbie's smart. She's, like, sharp, right? Um, because when you're married, you don't have to testify against the other in court. You don't have to give information. Um, but the nature of their relationship, again, it's another interesting point. She was unaware where Bob was around Christmas time. That, that year, it would have been their first Christmas together. Also, that was around the time that Susan Berman was murdered. Okay, so it is confirmed that Bob was in California at the time of her murder as well. That is confirmed. Interesting. Isn't it? So Susan had told friends that Bob was coming to visit sometime around the holidays. He used a parking facility at Arcata, 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 let's say Arcata Airport. Bob picked up his car on December 19th. Bob used a calling card tracked to payphones. 80 to 90 miles from Trinidad, California. That's where it showed up. Then there was no activity from the day after Susan's murder for three days. Mm. So just... He shows up then in San Francisco to get a ticket to, uh, to New York. 
And the next afternoon is when Susan Berman's body was discovered. Right. Um, according to the medical examiner, Susan's body had been laying in her house for about 24 hours. Mm. Which would give him enough time. time all right. Yeah. Okay. Here's another fun fact. Susan's stepson finds an envelope in Susan's belongings. It's from Bob. It's identical to the cadaver note, even spelling Beverly wrong. Right? Okay. So. I mean, if that is not a dead giveaway. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to do more about the note. The note, the notes are, have always been very compelling to me, but so now we're basically in episode six. That one went pretty quick. Uh, quick. So they bring up the note again, the original note, the cadaver note, um, which they tied to Kathy's medical school where she had a cadaver to learn on. So they were saying maybe he associates that word because of her schooling. Oh, like maybe she I was see. speaking right. at home about things like that or whatever. Yeah. Right. Um, so now time has passed. Episode six is about new finds. Okay. So we have all the information from before. Morris Black. We have the Kathy information. We have Susan Berman information. So after learning about this new note, um, the documentary people want to sit down with Bob again. But they have a hard time nailing him down. He keeps pushing back the dates. He said he's going to Madrid. How fancy. Oh. Um, he'll talk to them when he gets back. But they find out through another source he's in L.A., not Madrid. At one point, he said he doesn't want to do anything else. So while they're in the process of trying to do all this, Bob gets arrested in New York. Apparently. Sandwich? Not the sandwich. This is after the sandwich. Okay. Post-sandwich. Um, apparently when they had shot in the city in Times Square, Doug Liss, I just wrote Doug, like we're best friends, uh, <laughs> and Doug, had put an order of protection on Bob. A few weeks later, when Bob approached his brother's New York City residence and was caught on surveillance, mm. he was in violation of that order. Okay. Good job, Bob. Good job. Egg salad all over again. So they finally get Bob in. After he posts bail for violating his protective order, Andrew Jarecki brings the notes to Bob's attention. The one he actually wrote that is known, the cadaver note, uh, note the one that he actually wrote to Susan to that the Susan. stepson found, mm -hmm. and the cadaver note. Bob admits the writing looks similar and the spelling is the same. He seems to be more twitchy during this interview. At one point while he's talking, he covers his face and he's touching his ear. He burps on camera. <laughs> Classy. But, like, he can't control. It's, like, all just, like, nervous. nervous. Yeah. Um, Stress. Yeah. So Bob said, he just says, a writing expert would probably conclude that the same person wrote both. Really? Is that what an expert would say? <laughs> That's interesting. Or a layperson. <laughs> okay. Or you. Look yourself. It Look it up. Okay. So Andrew asks him straight out, did he write the cadaver note? Bob says no. Andrew asks him in a few different ways. So you wrote this one, but not this one. 
Like, he do, he's like, so this one and that this. Like, you're at the eye doctor. Like, better. Right. Worse. He's switching them up, right? To kind of try to confuse Yeah, like, them. what about this one? Okay. Was it this one or was it that one that you wrote? Then he asks. This is my favorite. This is my favorite. Can you tell me which of these you didn't write? Bob says no. He's just it. So that's... How... I can't... <laughs> There's no words. What do you say? So they wrap up. That's pretty much the end of that interview. Bob heads to the bathroom. Here's what happens next. Bob's mic is hot. He's in the bathroom. He's alone. But he's talking to himself. Here's exactly what he says. These are all direct quotes. I got so close to my TV with that pause button. So accurate. There it is. You're caught. You're right, of course. But you can't imagine. Arrest him. I don't know what's in the house. Oh, I want this. What a disaster. He was right. I was wrong. And the burping. (laughs) I'm having difficulty with the question. What the hell did I do? Kill them all, of course. So, that's the end of the documentary. Goodbye. Have a good night. Just kidding. (laughs) We're not done. So, the documentary came out in 2015. It's 2020. What's happened? What's been going on? Hold on. Can you believe he said that? Yes. On? Yes, I can. With the microphone on? Because he's a spooky spider. Yes, I can. can. Absolutely. My. But he said the things before. He said the things on the chair before. He didn't even leave when he said that weird shit last time. Oh, I know. But this is. I know. Well. So hold on. People have taken issues with a lot of things in the time between. Like the film crew withheld information. Like they had this information. They're sitting on it. Um, Didn't they have a responsibility to turn it over earlier? They claimed they didn't find the footage till much later. I see. Like while editing. Because he was in the bathroom. So it's. So maybe they, maybe they didn't even look at it? Yeah, maybe they didn't even look at it. It wasn't part of the interview, right? I don't know. I don't necessarily believe that. Because maybe they were just... Maybe they didn't know what to do with it. Maybe. Because just like the other information they had about the other note, they didn't turn that over right away. Because mm, it, true. it looks like throughout the documentary, like first Andrew was like, let's do this guy's story. It seems interesting. And he thought about him one way. And as it went on and he spoke with him, he was like, I kind of feel like he did all these things. Like, I feel like he changed, but he still didn't hand over everything he had right away because he was almost trying to get more. I think he says something to this. Like, he was trying to get more so he could help. Right. Right? So he was kind of like, we have some stuff. We're getting some stuff out of him. Like, let's keep going. Let's keep it going. It did seem that way. And let's be honest. It wasn't like Bob Durst was going around telling anyone else anything. So Right. So also, you know, with that back and forth, was any of this even admissible in court? Mm, That's right. a question, right? right? So here's something that we we do know. The audio they play at the end of the episode, what I just read for you, is edited. Robert Durst said all of those things, but not in that order. So while it's obviously still odd and problematic, it's more ambiguous in the order he actually said it in. Oh. Right? Um I was never able to find a full copy, but I found, like, snippets where he said things 
there was like a tiny bit more context. It was still very random, but it wasn't like together. Like, what did I do? Kill them all, of course. Like, it wasn't like that. Okay. But he still said all the things. Right. So, I don't know. Hmm, that would be um, interesting to hear. I know. Right? In its entirety. Yes. Um, his lawyers, as always, made it out like everyone's out to get Bob. Which I think Bob is out to get himself. Like, come on. <laughs> might, might be sure. That seems more likely at this He's point. He's out to get himself. He has such a great team. But where's Bob in all this? Traveling under an alias, once again... He is arrested in New Orleans the same year the documentary comes out, 2015, in connection with Susan's murder. Um, police... Do you know who the alias was? No, unfortunately. Maybe it was Morris Black. Just kidding. Imagine he was still using that. Maybe. After the trial, he was like, let me get that license back, please. <laughs> so... Also, how did he get all those fake IDs? Did he just... <gasps> Probably knew a guy. Were there more victims? Well, or maybe he just knew someone. Maybe he just knew a guy. All right. Yeah. He's like, just make me a lady, and then they did the who Mrs. Did Doubtfire. The I mean, who didn't go in the city and get fake ideas when they were younger? I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I definitely didn't. Do you think he did like a Harvey Firestein matchmaker Mrs. Doubtfire scene where they made him look like a lady? Maybe. That's that's gonna live in my head. That's how I want to think of it, but. <laughs> So, we're back to this. The police had been watching him. Apparently, he had been running around stockpiling cash, and the fear was that he was getting ready to flee the country, especially because the documentary, I don't know if it had just come out or was coming out, Mm -hmm. right? Um, They also found guns and a mask. So... What kind of a mask? Maybe like a Ronald Reagan Reagan mask. mask For Richard Nixon? I was picturing a, a Ronald Reagan yeah? specifically. I was thinking that over Richard Nixon. He doesn't really seem like a Nixon guy. Maybe yes. that's wrong. I don't know. Yes. I don't claim to know Bob Durst that well. So there's a lot of back and forth, obviously. And they want to take him to trial. So after many delays and petitions and so on, Bob's trial just started in February. Just started. Um... Interesting recent developments include Bob's admission that he did indeed write the cadaver note. He admitted it? He admitted it. His team argues. His team's so good. I can't wait to hear this. His team argues. I can't. It's so hard to say without laughing. That doesn't indicate guilt, but it does indicate that the writer had knowledge of a body in the house. So you want to tell me, you want to tell me, he was just passing by and was like, I don't know. <laughs> Susan? Oh, door's sh- open. Maybe I'll just send someone a note. I don't want to, I don't want to really help. Seems like a lot of work. This is un- <laughs> like, I don't. That, I mean, come on. Would he just walk into her? Imagine. Come on. If he found her. Let's say. Let's say he did. Let's say he drove up and he found her. And then he was like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> Yikes, this is not what I signed up for. <laughs> I just wanted to visit for the holidays. Who would do Which? Why would you just leave? Nobody, Nobody does do that. that. Nobody does no, that. Nobody does that. So that's what his lawyers say. And again, because of the magical power. And Dick DeGaron is still on his team oh, now, no. by the way. So we're all screwed. But, In New York. New yeah. Yorkers are more susceptible to that charming uh, to being bamboozled. Texas accent. Oh. Are we? Yeah. I don't know. I feel like we don't trust outsiders. Well, we'll see. We'll see when this wraps up. Nice cowboy hat. No, I'm just... 
Just kidding. But we are. I love it. I in love general, it. as New Yorkers, we are mean. But I, I like it. So anyway. Um, so his team argues it doesn't indicate guilt. does indicate that the writer had knowledge of a body in the house. Um, parts of the documentary are admissible and being used in court. It, it appears like it's being considered one piece at a time. Andrew Jarecki and a few of the other guys who worked on the documentary are all supposed to take the stand. Oh, really? Yes. Which is interesting, and I hope it's televised. I don't know if I will be, but now let's let's go one further. Let's update it to coronavirus time. Present day, Bob's trial is on hold because of coronavirus. I'm surprised they didn't you know, file to have him let out in light of the coronavirus. Babe, don't rule it out. <laughs> don't rule it out. His lawyer's going to say, well, you know, just make up a crazy yeah, excuse. Right. The coronavirus, I can't do an accent. I'm so sorry. No, I'm going to offend so many people. That wasn't good. <laughs> that was like Bill, <laughs> Bill Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> it was. It was. I just started doing a Bill Clinton impression. Yeah, I'm, so, just, I'm so sorry. Just leave it alone. Move on. <laughs> <laughs> so... With that, I don't know what, how that works. Obviously, you know, pandemic has not happened in our lifetime before. But if, if your trial is put on hold when it's already begun, do they have to start over? Are they get a new jury? I know these are questions that don't have answers right now. Yeah, but it's know. certainly not going to be fresh in their heads, whatever they've learned. Right. How could they not need some kind of refresher or recap or something? That. Yeah. And then also his um, his attorneys, if they did it like that, could probably file a mistrial. That's interesting. Right. Um, so that's Bob Durst, as much as we have, as much as we know. It's a lot of information. It's a lot. It's <laughs> a lot of information. We talked about a lot of things. It took me a really long time to go through all of this to even just. There's so many layers. Write it down. There's so many layers. But here's what here's what we know. He killed Morris Black. He did. He killed him. He dismembered Morris Black. All the evidence points to that. He killed his friend Susan Berman. There is not enough evidence to say with certainty based on evidence that he killed Kathy Durst. But let's be real. I'm going to leave it blank so I don't get sued. Let's be real. Blank, 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 killed, blank, blank, blank. <laughs> so we can all draw our own conclusions. Draw your own conclusions that I have not point. steered you towards at all. Um, maybe th and there will be an update that I can give later when coronavirus is over. I hope so. And I hope it's a, I hope it's a good update. I feel like that's a very justice. Yes. I, we would love justice, but I feel like that was a very ignorant thing of me to say, like when coronavirus is over, like it's a, oh, well. <laughs> when it's over. Yeah. It's not going to be over. It's not going to be over. We knew what you meant. When things have calmed down and yes. courts and such can go back to normal. Yeah. So that was a lot. Hope you all enjoyed us talking about. Our friend Bob Durst, I'm go he's not our friend, just kidding. I don't like him at all. Thank you for letting me be <laughs> a part of your podcast. You're welcome. You're welcome Hope so much. to see you all again. See, you're going to see them? Hear you, talk to you all again. You, you can hear them? <laughs> <laughs> no. I promise I can't. <laughs> She's cracking up in quarantine, everyone. It's not good. Um, so I'm going to post this. I'm going to post some pictures from this case so you can see what is spooky. 
out pictures of you oh. posing. <laughs> uh, okay. Awkward. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Pictures from the case. Um, you can see them on the True Crime Time Instagram. Stop laughing and choking. There's no choking. True Crime Time Instagram. Also Facebook now. Check us out there. Also, I wanted to add friend of the podcast, who also has a podcast, Forensic Miles, has some really cool merch. First, check out Forensic Miles if you, like the rest of us, have always been obsessed with Forensic Files. I mentioned her podcast last episode. She breaks down in detail all your favorite Forensic Files episodes. What's wrong with that? She made awesome merch. Um, you can go to Forensic Miles, that's M-Y-L-E-S dot com. There's a shop tab. You can check out some cool stuff. I think there's tote bags, phone cases, shirts, sweatshirts, cool stuff for lounging in while you're quarantining. And guess what else? If you use code True Crime Time, you get 20% off for your cool True Crime Time or True Crime merch. Miles merch, not my merch. Um, so that's all for now. You have anything else you want to say while you're choking on your drink? <laughs> I don't. It's been a pleasure. Oh. Sorry. We'll, we'll, we'll talk to you next time. We will. And that's it. Thanks for listening to True Crime Time, where it's always ch- crime time. <laughs> true crime. Time for true crime. Just forget it, guys. Have a good night. <laughs>